Well, hello and welcome to The Pulse. My name is Robert Cahoon and I am really privileged um, to have Francis Hogan on the interview today. Uh, what an incredible person. Francis Hogan is a lay missionary and educator um, working in the Catholic Church um, since the late 1960s. She's worked as a missionary in West Africa for some years. And she was the first person to put the whole of the gospel on television, uh, every word, not just various passages. Uh, EW, EWTN has the Gospel of Luke completely, uh, and Shalom World has the whole of Matthew and John. She's done a vast amount of television work um, in the last 25 years, mainly with EWTN and Shalom World. And she has been, um, from the mid-80s, she's lectured at the Milltown Institute of Philosophy and Theology in Dublin, four years on the Theological Commission on the Bishop. She's trained as a spiritual director and a retreat giver. She's written 10 books. Um, some of them have been out, out of print over the years. She's made many teachings on scripture and the spiritual life available for sale on hundreds of cassettes. Um, she continues to give missions in parishes as retreats and seminars to people, mainly in the English-speaking world. Uh, she also gives scripture classes, spiritual direction, guidance on the spiritual life in her home parish. Her parish. So Frances comes from a family of nine. Um, her oldest sister has passed away, um, but the rest are, are living. Her parents have now deceased. They're called Mary and Joseph, which she considers significant. Um, her father was the main influence in her life, teaching her the scriptures from infancy, and she never knew a time when the scriptures were not part of her daily fare. Um, her father encouraged the habit of daily mass since early childhood and really was a man of prayer, especially in the latter years of his life. And the family rosary was a daily event in youth and God was a big part of the equation in everyday life. And from the age of 10, Francis has taught scripture by her parish priest, who was a scripture scholar of note in the Diocese of Dublin. Um, he was a professor of Oriental languages at the University College Dublin, translated the New Testament by himself. He had a library of 10,000 books donated by the university after his death. Um, another priest acted as spiritual director to her in those teenage years. Um, it was during this time Francis decided to follow the Irish tradition of exile for Christ to become a missionary. Uh, this wasn't uh, unusual. She promised the Lord to take the gospel to the ends of the earth from a tender age of three when she experienced God personally for the first time. Um, like St. Paul, Francis has a sense of woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. It's a burden being laid upon me. Uh, she agrees with Paul. It's not a matter of boasting or claiming to be better than anyone else. It's her duty given by God. Well, um, Francis, it's a real honour uh, and privilege to interview to you today about your life. And uh, you were born in 1941 in the middle of the Second World War, uh, the, the fifth child in a family of nine children. And um, your, your life is absolutely incredible. It reads like a reads like a. Um, like a sort of blockbuster, blockbuster film and movie. Um, tell tell us about your your childhood. There's some fascinating parts of your your childhood. Um, sitting on your um, father's knee, seeing Jesus's face on your father, kissing the the tabernacle, living in a haunted house, going to boarding school. Um, your your parents in Dublin. Tell us a bit about your childhood, just to begin with, and before we come on to the, the rest of your life, which I just briefly summarised just now. <laughs> well, as you've just said, I'm a war baby. Uh, I was born in the middle of the Second World War among uh, a great shortage of food. Uh, food was absolutely rationed. Uh, we lived in a tiny house, which was fit for about three people. Uh, instead of the huge crowd that we were. Um, and although we knew real poverty, the real thing, uh, we did not have a consciousness of ourselves as poor. Not at all. Um, we just accepted the circumstances that we were living in and got on with it. Um, but uh, things happened that mightn't happen in a family that was well-to-do. For example, from the age of three, I was taught how to knit uh, because my mother uh, taught all her daughters, definitely down as far as me. I can't guarantee for the younger ones. I think they were spoiled because it was after the war. Um, 
but she taught us all how to knit and to knit with such consistency that we were able to knit a jumper or a cardigan in 24 to 48 hours and it could be sold. It was perfect. Um, but nobody would have believed that the people doing the knitting were three and four and six and seven and eight. Nobody would believe it. Those kind of miracles were sort of normal. Um, and uh, everybody had to pull their weight, you know. Um, we There was some foods we would never have unless we had um, country cousins who could send us sacks of potatoes. And I remember once we lived in a little cul-de-sac of uh, 20 houses. We were very cl uh, close-knit. Uh, my mother was the unpaid nurse in this cul-de-sac of houses. <clears throat> and she looked after everybody and she said, Nobody ever died who wasn't specifically called. Uh, and if they weren't called, she prevented them from dying. I don't know how she did it because she wasn't a trained nurse. My father played the fiddle. Nowadays, they call it the violin. And he was the entertainer for the, the group. And so we were very much involved in, in this little um, cul-de-sac of houses. So when a sack of potatoes would arrive, my mother would uh, divide them up into 20 parts so that everybody in the cul-de-sac got them. And I remember saying to her one day, but mom, you've got nine children. She said, yeah, but Mrs. Flynn has 11 or Mrs. Whatever has six. We have to feed them all. She said, we can't all eat. These. We can't eat all of these potatoes, she said. And this idea that you were living in a community and that everybody had equal rights it was written in the air and nobody ever wrote it on paper, but it was just the reality uh, that was there. We were all um, very much uh, involved, you know what I mean? Um, but faith was right at the very heart of it. I've always said that I knew Jesus was living in our house. Nobody ever told me he was, but I just knew he was. Uh, to the point that uh, when eventually I was sent away to um, a boarding school, which I hated, absolutely hated, I would write home and ask, apart from asking how everybody else was, I'd ask how Jesus was. As far as I was concerned, he was in that house. He was, he was, he was the centre of the life that we lived. And you, you were sitting on your father's knee and then you saw um, Jesus's face uh, kind of on your father's face. That, that story is really amazing. You've told that a couple of times. Well, my father was a born teacher. Uh, he wasn't able to train as a teacher because there was no money in those days. Um, and at night he used to gather us on his knees. Uh, I have no idea how the knees stretched to take four or five children, depending on how many were available at that particular moment. But how many children came, he would take them all. And he taught us, and I, I'll just talk about myself, he taught me history, geography, poetry and religion before I went to school. Oh. And I went to school when I was three and a half. And um, I remember him asking me after a few weeks, how was I doing in school? And I told him I was bored. And he, he smiled and he said, why are you bored? I said, I think we know nothing. <laughs> I was only three and a half. <laughs> and I was able to list off uh, all the rivers in South America, just for example, uh, and all the areas and all the big cities and everything at three and a half. And I thought it was perfectly normal because it was the dad who taught me. And so there was one particular night when I was the only one who turned up. And so I got the two knees all to myself and we were studying the geography of South America. And because I was only so small, it didn't matter to me which part of the map was up or down. So the map was actually upside down and my father had enough sense not to turn it around because if the child was happy with it this way, that was fine. It actually didn't change any anything on the map. And so I pointed to in the most southern part in South America, Terra del Fuego. And I said, who lives there? And when my dad wanted to uh, get you to really receive something he was teaching you, he 
give you what he called a hard love, which was that he would hold you very, very tight. And then you knew this was special. And so I listened and he's, he whispered in my ear because he was behind me. Uh, the people down there have never heard of Holy God or your Blessed Mother. Now he actually created theological problems for me, uh, which I had to deal with in later life. <laughs> At that moment, it wasn't a problem. Uh, and I turned around and I looked him straight in the face, but I didn't see him. I actually saw Jesus crucified. And I learned a huge lesson. And I've been trying to teach others all down the years, do not use kiddish language with children. They are spiritual adults. He knew that as a three and a half year old, I could take him as a crucified savior and that I would understand it and that I would uh, know how to respond to it. Nobody ever told me that, about what you would do in such a situation. He knows. And I've been trying to release people to try and allow the spirit of a child uh, to, to be alive because the child is not mm -hmm. tainted with sin and therefore the intellect is not uh, blurred. The understanding is not blocked. And so if you say something that is spiritual and true, the child can understand. The child will also know instantly whether you're speaking the truth or not. It's very, very interesting. Um, but anyway, I saw Jesus superimposed on my father's face. And I said to Jesus, I will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, that's not language a three and a half year old uses. So that was language that the Lord put into me to tell me what my vocation was. Um. My dad said absolutely nothing. Uh, but he just held me for about five minutes, which, of course, is a long time for a three and a half year old. Uh, and he never, ever spoke about it until years later when I was helping him to prepare for death. And uh, so this was he died around 1986. And I said to him one day, do you remember that day? He said, remember it, he said. I learned all about fatherhood in two seconds. Oh, amazing. You were not seeing me and you were not talking to me. And I said, that's correct. Wow. He said, I realized I was in God's shoes. And that there, was a, there was a time uh, in your childhood as well where you t kissed the tabernacle in, in the church. That was an amazing story as well. <laughs> That's later. <laughs> because um, uh, a relationship started between Jesus and myself on the day mm -hmm. I saw him. Uh, and that's, that's been the key thing throughout my whole life. Um, and it's what made me, has made me different in other people's eyes. They just know I don't think the way they think um, and that I don't do things the way uh, other people think they should be done. Um, but the incident you've spoken about uh, happened when I was about six. Uh, I made my first Holy Communion around that time. And believe it or not, I have no memory at all of the first Holy Communion. Nothing at all. It's completely blank. All I have is a photograph to prove that I did it. <laughs> But it was sometime around then that I had this experience you've just mentioned. And that for me was it. That was the real thing for me. Uh, and that was that uh, we used to walk to school and it would take um, maybe 25 minutes to get from the school home. But on the way, we would pass by the parish church, the parish church of St. John the Baptist in Blackrock. And I used to call in every day, every day. And I would just pop in, uh, pop down on my knees, maybe for 30 seconds, maybe sometimes it would be a minute. It, it might be unusual for it to be longer because all the other children would be looking for me. And I'd ask him how he was and did he have a good day? <laughs> and one day he asked me to come up to the, to the altar. And the church was empty, so I had no problem about that. So obviously the other children ran on. Uh, and I walked up to the altar and he said, 
come up and give me a kiss. Now, I knew that anybody who would see a girl going onto the sanctuary, that, I mean, there would be a third world war. Yeah. And so I said, girls aren't allowed. It's only for men. And he said, I'm in charge. It's my house. I said, well, fair enough. If it's your house, I'm going. <laughs> so I went in and, of course, went up to the, the altar and my head just reached the altar. There was no possibility of, of seeing anything. I said, sure, I can't even see it. I was better off there. And he said, get a stool. And I went over and got a stool, which the servers would have used, step, stepped up on it. And I said, but you're locked in there. How do I know? I can't get at you. And he said, oh, it's all right. I'll take it on the outside. <laughs> and I had kissed the tabernacle. And the instant I did, I became aware of the fact that someone had come in the door. <laughs> and Jesus himself said, run quick. There's somebody coming. And I ran and put the stool aside, uh, ran down the steps <clears throat> and knelt at the altar rails like a proper Pharisee pretending <laughs> I was the holy one. <laughs> it was desperately funny, but it was my first time to hear Jesus laugh. I've heard him laugh a number of times and his laughter is the most incredible thing you could ever experience. The whole universe would laugh if you if they could hear him, his laughter. I couldn't describe it. It has a, I don't, I can't explain it. It's, it's like heaven breaks out. And I heard him laugh for the first time, me being the Pharisee and, that, and everything. And I lifted up my head and I said, Lord, will you get rid of him? And then we continue. <laughs> <laughs> and the poor man only stayed about a minute. He didn't even have permission to stay in God's house. He was crazy. And he went off and I said, now we're alone. And I realized from that moment, that's the way it was going to be for the whole of my life. Wow. I would only ever be happy when he and I were alone together. But I, I wasn't able to put language on that for many, many, many years that I was called to a solitary life. It has taken a very long journey because nobody knew, nobody understood. I didn't understand. I only knew that if I was alone with him, I was completely happy. Um, so tell us, um, tell us about your relationship with Monsignor Boylan and your meeting with him, I believe, when, when you were age 10. Um, so you already had a desire to be taught scripture. And that was quite a big thing, you know, being so young, going to meet a priest uh, at that age. So that was quite a pivotal moment in your life. Um, and it, was he your parish priest? Was he the, the local yes. priest? Yeah. We moved house to Dunleary, uh, into a larger house than we were in. Was that the haunted house? Yeah. The haunted house, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And every, everything we had fitted in the hall. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was fascinating, it really was, but never mind. Uh, but my father had been teaching me the scriptures all that time. And we gained a reputation at home that my dad wouldn't stop. And I never stopped him if he was talking scripture. So my mother sometimes said to us, look, if you're going to keep this up, will you go out? And he would bring me for a long, long walk and he'd be talking about the scriptures all the time. Uh, but when, when I discovered that the parish priest was a famous scripture scholar, I decided to take the law into my own hands and I'd go a little bit higher than my dad. But I knew instinctively not to tell the dad or I would have been told where to go. <laughs> <laughs> and you wouldn't be disturbing the priest in those days because pre-Vatican II, uh, the attitude is very different than it is now. And so uh, I decided to go down to the priest's house. <clears throat> he lived in this huge big house as far as I was concerned, basement and two levels above it. Uh, basement, ground floor, and another level. And the, the curates were in the next houses beside him. So I knocked at the door and his housekeeper, who was called Nelly, came to the door. And she looked at me and she said, no, 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 no. She said, the curates live next door. I said, no, I'm the curate. And she's looking at a 10 year old kid. And I was actually very small because I, I was quite sickly as a child. 
<clears throat> I said, I don't want Monday. I want Monsignor. She said, whatever for? I said, it's private. And she was so taken by this. She left the front door open, went down the hallway. His study was off the hall. She opened the door a little bit and she said, there's a kid out here, a little girl, who says she wants to see Monsignor Boylan. And it's private. And she imitated me. So <laughs> I was let in and I was brought into his room, where his study, where all these massive books were. It was incredible. And I took one look at this man. And as far as I was concerned, I was looking at Methuselah. <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't imagine anybody as old as him. And he had a blanket on his knees. And I thought, can you be that old? I am that old now. And... Uh, he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, they told me you're a scripture scholar. And he smiled and he said, well, I suppose you would say that all right. Uh, but he said, what do you want me to do for you? And I said, I want you to teach me scripture. And I saw two big tears coming down his face. And I thought, oh my God, I've burnt my boats. The parents will throw me out for upsetting the priest. <laughs> I'm not only down here by myself, but I've actually upset the man. And he could read me like a book. And he said, okay, you have upset me, he said, but not for, not for the reason you think. And I said, why have I upset you? He said, I am a professor. He said, you know what that is? And I said, no, the word's far too big. <laughs> and he said, I'm the top man in a university. Do you know what that is? I said, no. <laughs> I didn't. Anyway, he said, never mind. He said, they, they say I'm one of the, the top people in the, the teaching thing. And I said, yeah, they told me that. Uh, and he said, you're the only person who has ever asked the only question that should be asked about Christ, uh, scripture. Wow. Said, That's what upset me. A little child will teach them, he said. Yeah. And so at the time, when the, the farmers in Ireland were doing their buying and selling of cattle and that, when they wanted to do a deal, uh, one of them would put his hand out and the other would clasp it. And that was the deal. There was nothing on paper. That was it. And they, this priest put out his hand and he said, put your hand there. My little hand fitted right in the middle of his big hand. And he said, until my dying day, yes. Wow. And I was the last person who ever spoke to him on this earth. Wow. He died when he was 96 years of age. Uh, and at the time, I was already uh, in a religious community. Uh, I went to visit him. There was no visitors on the door. Notice on the door. And I popped my head in because I knew Nellie would recognize me, which she did, and she just nodded. And I went right up to him. <clears throat> And he was lying on his side and I said, it's your little friend. He never, ever called me by my name, ever. He only ever referred to me as his little friend. And I thought, yeah, if I was a hundred, I'd still be his little friend. Uh, and so I said to him directly, you're going to see Jesus very soon, aren't you? And he just nodded his head. And I said, would you please tell him I love him? I got the two tears again. And then I got the most magnificent smile. And he closed his eyes forever. Wow. So my first meeting and my last meeting with him were just very, very significant and grace-filled. You know? Amazing. And so he, he taught you scripture and then you entered religious life in 1959 um, just before the storm of the Second Vatican Council, you joined the Kilisandra uh, Sisters for 14 years. Uh, what was the postulancy like um, with uh, religious life in those days? And, you know, did they have a habit, kind of look like a spacesuit, something like that? I don't know why you picked out postulancy. That's not the most important bit. Okay. Anyway, uh, the reason why I went into a community was because I asked Monsignor Boylan, what do I do to become a scripture teacher? Yeah. And he said, oh, I brought this on myself. He said, I knew you were going to 
I knew you were going to come up with this, he said. And he, he just said to me, in the church, the way it is now, he said, there's only one way you can do that, he said, and that's to become a religious. Now, I was never called to be a religious. <clears throat> but Monsignor Boylan, as far as I was concerned, was the nearest thing to God himself, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So if he said so, I had to do it. He said, there's no way as a lay person they would ever allow you to be a scripture teacher. He said, there's just no way at all. So, um, and then he, he shook his head and he said, oh, I knew I brought this on with him. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I had been uh, five years in a boarding school. So going into uh, a religious community was not awfully different from being in a boarding school, except that you weren't going to go home. Um, and uh, as a postulant, you were only dressed in a, in a uh, black dress and a little tiny black veil. So that didn't matter. It, it was when they made you a novice yeah. and you got into the religious garb. That's when I felt I was going around in a spacesuit because you had this huge thing on your head. And I thought, how long is this going to last? And I didn't realize as long as it's going to last. And they gave me an unspeakable name, which I won't. Um, mentioned either and I thought no 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 this, this is not going to work this is absolutely <laughs> crazy um, but I knew that once I went in that that was part of the journey mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't the terminus of the journey it was part of the journey but <clears throat> the training I got in religious life was actually very valuable uh, I don't think I could have survived being um, uh, a single lay woman uh, working full-time in the church. I don't think I could have survived that at all without the training that I had as a, uh, as a religious. But you, you needed all that discipline behind you, you know? So anything you, you wanted to do, they just kind of pick the other the other thing, say, and they, they, they set you doing science and that kind of thing, teaching science. Well, they had some strange ideas about what obedience was and all the rest of it. Uh, and, um, they thought, uh, now I, I, I'm not singling out that particular group as any different from any of the others. It was just the thinking at the time. Uh, they didn't seem to understand what humility was. Uh, and so they would go against anything you wanted to do. Like I told you, I was a professional knitter from three and a half. Well, the moment they discovered that I wasn't allowed to knit ever again. Yeah. And to me, that's just frustration. That doesn't actually produce any um, virtue. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all they did was that they, they, but they didn't realize what they were doing. Do you know what I mean? Um, but uh, I just let the Lord use all of it uh, for internal purification and preparation uh, for what was coming. So uh, you have to learn the science of the cross because the cross will come to you uh, in life whether you are in religious life or in lay life, whether you're married or single, the cross will come to you anyway. Uh, and if we don't learn the science of the cross, I think we're not going anywhere as disciples of Jesus. You know? Yeah. So um, you, were, you were sent as a missionary uh, to Nigeria. Was that your first uh, foreign posting as, as a nun? And there was a war going on in, in Nigeria. So uh, you, had to, you had to leave the country to Cameroon um, abruptly because the... Uh, situation in the country deteriorated and you, you had a boat trip down the river there escaping the Nigerian military in a, in a river full of crocodiles and, and this kind of trauma it sounds uh, sounds quite dramatic <laughs> beginning to religious life. Um, I arrived in Nigeria about six months before the Biafran war and so there was incredible tension in the place um, and uh, I remember uh, waking up at night and uh, going to my window uh, without putting a light on and noticing people uh, planting bombs in the front um, of our property. And that was to sort of um, blame us so that they could throw us out and that we were foreigner, we were foreign enemies and all the rest of it. Uh, what we were doing was we were educating them <laughs> so far as it was possible. But um, I had a very interesting experience there that you may not have heard of. Uh, and that is that <clears throat> I said, Lord, here I am. Uh, I'm in Africa. 
these people loved scripture. Uh, I can only teach a class of scripture as sort of part of the curriculum. Don't you have some other way that I can do it? And he said, yeah. He said, I'm going to give you a captive audience. Now I have a good imagination. So a captive audience is Carnegie Hall in New York or something. You know what I mean? And uh, he has an incredible sense of humor. It's one of the things I've been trying to tell everybody about God is his wonderful sense of humor. We just don't give him a chance. So he knew he had caught me on the words captive audience. And I wasn't quick enough to say, oh, so what are you talking about? All I did was I said, OK, I'll wait, see what happens. I'm not going to do anything. I asked. And about a week later, it was arranged for me to, uh, I didn't make the arrangement, it was made by the higher ups, <clears throat> that I would start visiting the local federal prison, a captive audience. <laughs> and I said, okay, it's not a Carnegie Hall, it's down the road. And I, the same Bible that I still use to this day, I'll probably be buried with it, um, I carried under my arm, walked down to this prison, and before I actually arrived at the front gate, I said, Lord, you have a problem, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And it was written in the air, what's your problem? I said, these people speak Igbo and I speak English. Over to you. <laughs> I'm not having a problem. Knocked at the door, went in, asked for my first interview which was given to me. And then I had to go a few times before they would actually let me teach scripture because I wanted to gather them, you see. And all I can tell you is that I used drawings in the air and I would try and uh, describe something using my body and all the rest of it and left the rest of it to God and they understood. Who did the translation? I couldn't tell you because they had no English and I had no people. And we got on absolutely fine, my captive audience. And after a while, both sides completely relaxed and the guards and everybody used to come and, and listen. And they thoroughly enjoyed it. And gradually they picked up some of my English expressions and gradually I picked up some of their Igbo expressions. We had a new language, which was neither English nor Igbo. <laughs> and apparently everybody understood. It was perfectly okay. And it was one of the things I loved about being there is that things like that could happen. But of course the war uh, increased, you know, uh, more and more. And eventually I had to write home my last letter to my mother <clears throat> and uh, try and tell her that there'd be no more communication unless I somehow by a miracle arrived in Dublin airport. Uh, but I wanted to tell her where I was. So I wrote a letter to her in Gaelic. Uh, and I said, please superimpose a map of um, Nigeria on the map of Ireland. And you will realize what I'm saying if I tell you that I'm going to the bog. <laughs> the bog in Ireland is just an old place place. Yeah. Nothing there. So she realized that we were having to get lost. Wow. We had to literally disappear if we were to survive at all. But they were terribly worried, you know. Uh, but some incredibly funny things happened as well. Uh, uh, one of which uh, was eventually put into a play in Dublin. And when I eventually got home to Dublin, my mother insisted on showing me this play. And I thought, it was enacted in, in a, a theatre in Dublin. I said, Mother, that's me. <laughs> she couldn't believe it. <laughs> she couldn't believe it, that I was the person they were illustrating. It was a, a, an incident that happened uh, one day. They, when everything got really, really, really bad, if you had to take a journey, you would be searched and searched and searched and searched and searched and searched until they weren't the same colour you were when you left home. <laughs> uh, anyway, we were stopped at a particular, we had 39 searchings on this particular journey. To give you an idea of what I mean by searched, 
what they were looking for, we had no idea. They probably were told that we were carrying weapons or something. Uh, and uh, on this particular journey, we were trying to take an English sister to safety because they had turned completely against anything British. And so we had to hide her passport. And I said, uh, she was a very intelligent, wonderful woman. And I had to say to her, I'm very sorry to say this. Please play the fool, will you? You don't understand anything. Now for her, that was a massive humiliation. <laughs> she was the type that would run the country. You know what I mean? She was a really efficient person. I said, please don't open your mouth no matter what happens. I said, I'm driving, I'll take the flag. So the poor girl. Anyway, we were stopped 39 times. It was very hard for her to give her mouth just 39 times. And anyway, on this particular occasion, this young man, he couldn't have been more than 17 years of age, holding this huge gun. And he pointed it at me because I was the driver. I pulled down the window and he said, out, out. So I indicated out and silent to the others. I'm doing the talking. I said to him, what's your problem? He said, um, take it off, take it off, take it off. And that was the veil we were wearing. <laughs> take it off, you see. <laughs> I decided to play him up. And I said to him, but there's nothing behind his only hair. I said, feel it, you can't touch it. I said, it would be an incredible shame. I said to ask his sister to remove her veil. It could only be done in a presbytery with priests present. <laughs> I'm sure as long as you didn't ask the priest, you know what I mean? <laughs> say, what do you mean? You know? But I was just playing the guy up. And then he said to me, he pointed to my sandals and he said, take them off, take them off, take them off. And I curved my foot so you could see there was nothing there. And I said, all of a sudden it dawned on me. I said, what did they tell you to do? He said, they told us to search the boots and the bonnets. <laughs> so I had to tell him where the boot of the car was. The it's actually the car. The car <laughs> and I said to him, it's not fair that they would say something in a foreign language to you. They should use your own language because you're an intelligent bloke. I said, sit down and we'll all have lunch together. And we all sat down on the scorching hot road, four degrees from the equator, and we shared our lunch with him. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that would happen in Africa and it couldn't happen anywhere else so because you had you, you had to escape the country and the, the, the boat sort of broke down was it the, the engine of the boat broke down while you were escaping the country uh, and the river was full of crocodiles that, uh, that story uh, eventually uh, things were so dangerous we had to actually leave mm -hmm. and we were we were given um, 20 minutes to get out and it's quite interesting what you will do if you have 20 minutes to leave. What you will take with you is actually very interesting. First item I put in my case was the Bible. I left all my teaching notes behind. <laughs> <laughs> I was only interested in the scriptures. <laughs> anyway, we had a, a long journey down to Fort Harcourt, uh, which would have been about four hours, three or four hours. <clears throat> and the people uh, came out and threw themselves in front of the cars because they said, if you leave us, we've no hope left. Wow. We said we were ordered to leave. We cannot stay. Um, anyway, they put us on uh, in, a, in a tiny, it was 40 women, 40 sisters. They put us in a tiny rowing boat uh, with a tiny starboard engine, no cover on top or four degrees from the equator. Yeah. You would just die from the sun alone. We were given no food and no water. Now to have no water in those conditions meant that you'd die rather quickly. Um, and they, there was two young guys manning the boat. One was 15 and the other was 17. And we had a, a, a Cameroonian flag and a surrender flag. <laughs> and um, we started out and you could see the crocs immediately traveling with you on either side of the boat. They, they travel about two or three inches 
under the surface of the water to let you know they're there. And you have no idea what a wake up call is until you see that. Because we were in a tiny boat, if it tilted at all, we were finished. Um, and we were, we were stuffed into this boat so tight that if anybody stood up, you'd never get the space again because the bodies would have to occupy that space. And the, the journey was 13 hours on the creeks. And um, so I'm a, from the time I was a teenager, I've been a very good storyteller. I used to entertain the girls in school with stories to make them obey the, the laws. And then we could do other things, you know. Uh, so I learned storytelling from a very early age. It's a, great help when you're teaching scripture to be a storyteller. Um, and so I started saying to them, <clears throat> I didn't call them sisters or anything else. I said, now girls, I'm going to start telling you stories. Do you mind? Take their minds off. <laughs> and then I'd stop and we'd pray and all the rest of it. We ran into a tropical storm. Now we were in trouble. Uh, because the boat would go this way and the crocodiles were getting excited. They were going to have Irish too for supper. Uh, and uh, so the boy, we said to the boys, is there any way we can save the lives of the people on this boat? And they said, there's only one way. And they said, someone has to go up on the canvas. They had put it, oh, sorry, they had second, sorry, I, I've jumped the story because uh, uh, we had to be pulled back to land and there was a whole thing that happened at the land and then we had to set out again. And when they set out a second time, they gave us uh, a boat which had a canvas on top. Uh, and they said somebody would have to go up on the canvas to act as ballast. So we had a, a 30 second meeting to know who was going to offer their lives for the rest of them. And the oldest sister on the, uh, the boat was 64. And she said, I've had a good life. Some of you are too young, she said, I'll go. Wow. And so we made steps with our hands for her to go up. And then we realized, no, that's lethal. She'll die in no time at all. So two more had to go up and I was one of the, the, the two. Landed myself on the side of the thing. We had to dig our uh, nails into the canvas to try and grip because the toss of the boat would knock you over. And so for two hours, all we heard was roll to the right, roll to the left, roll to the right. That meant two bodies on top of one that way, two bodies on top of one that way. And it went on like this the whole time. We saved them all. Wow. But at the end of that uh, two hour terror, that's all you could call it. Um, the three of us were completely exhausted, the three on top. And we had the most magnificent sunset you couldn't even imagine it it was out of this world it was heavenly and i remember looking up and saying to the lord you can keep it we're half dead <laughs> and because we had no water you see the thing we needed desperately was water but the crocs had all the water we couldn't <laughs> and then we continued on and we had a second storm uh, and we had the second storm just as we were approaching the Cameroons and our little boat was, the wharf was up there and our little boat was down here and there was no way it could get from one to the other. And we arrived about one o'clock in the morning, pitch dark. And there was a group of men uh, waiting for us because um, uh, word had been passed on that these uh, missionary sisters were in grave danger and to try and help them as much as they could. Uh, and um, when I was a child, uh, comic books used to come out and Eddie would have to walk the plank into the sea. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and the plank was put down to us at one o'clock in the morning. See, could you walk up in torrential rain and thunder and lightning? And the only time you could go up the plank was when there was lightning, because that was the only time you could see. Oh. Now, if that isn't a definition of a nightmare, you've never had one. Anyway, when it came to the three of us, we were just lying on the canvas. There was no way. There was, there was no way we could do it. And I just said a blank no. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. 
And I will remember forever that a man risked his life to come halfway down the plank in those conditions. He said, give me your hand. And he, he used incredible power to swing me from the boat onto the land. Wow. Now, he kind of nearly broke my arm and did all kinds of damage. The thing was, he got me off the boat and onto the land. And we, then we sank knee deep in mud. <sighs> wow. Well, missionary, missionary life's not for the faint hearted. That's for not sure. Not for the faint hearted. That's only <laughs> half the story. So you spent six years in uh, North Cameroon in uh, Bamenda. That's just south of the Sahara Desert. Uh, and you came back for another three years to Cameroon uh, as well after going back to, to Ireland. Was this like a dark night of the soul for you and, uh, you know, dramatic weather there as well as crazy roads in, in these countries? You know, it seems just quite an adventure being a, a missionary uh, at this time in, in, in Africa in your life. Well, right from the very beginning, uh, it was not for the faint heart. Yeah. Uh, you, you arrive in the middle of a war and, I mean, it can only get worse. Um, but uh, I can't remember whether it's three or four times I almost died uh, in, in the seven years I was in Africa. Now, to almost die four times in seven years is actually quite a, a Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> so I won't go into all of them. Um, it, it, was, it was horrendous. Uh, but all the time I was allowing the Lord uh, to purify me and purify me uh, all the time. Uh, and it was for me, the dark night of the soul, but I was in communication with my spiritual director at home. And uh, he was a very holy Carmelite priest. Um, and uh, he and I were so close spiritually that when I would need an answer to something, I would tell the Lord, I need Father Joe to tell me, to explain this and that and the other. It, if I had told him, it would have taken uh, seven to eight weeks for my letter to reach him and another two months for his letter to reply, if he replied immediately. But instead of that, I would get a letter a week later or two weeks later. But the Lord had told him long before I had the problem and he would, he would have, he'd be able to help me through it. Uh, and then came the, the day, it was Christmas Eve, uh, when I got this extraordinary premonition that there was something drastically wrong with him. Drastically wrong. Now, I was responsible for uh, pre preparing the, the, the Christmas meal for the bishop and the priests and the brothers and the sisters and absolutely everybody. Now, I didn't do the cooking, but I was the organiser. <clears throat> There's no way I could do it. I had to hand it over. And I went to my room and I knelt down and put this priest's photograph on the bed, started interceding for him. And I knew that I was at his bedside while he was dying. And I knew that he knew it as well. And at exactly 7.30, this huge stress that had been upon me lifted completely. And I knew that was the moment he died. Um, that, that was... So there were special things going on besides, besides all the trauma and all, all the, it would take hours and hours and hours to tell my story. <laughs> uh, it was far too much going on, you know? Yeah, I'm sorry we're, we're having to rush through so, so many good stories as well. And um, there was a, a moment where you met an elderly lady who, uh, was baptized just before she died that that was a really special missionary experience yeah there are some moments uh, <laughs> in a missionary's life when everything's worth it <laughs> you know uh i was teaching in in a secondary school and i was the second in command uh we had about 400 students and um whatever happened on this particular day i was really upset by it but I made a decision that I was not going to give my anger to anybody. I was going to uh, try and forgive and walk away to handle my feelings. Uh, but what I did was I walked into the bush, which is very dangerous, <laughs> very dangerous for all kinds of reasons, including snakes and stuff. Um, and I brought some chalk just to mark the trees. And I eventually found this little 
deserted village. Deserted simply because the, the, the majority of them were out doing whatever work they were doing. And I was guided towards um, one hut. Uh, and I knew my guardian angel was with me because he had indicated he was with me and he pushed me down, uh, down to the ground. Now I'm wearing white completely from head to foot. <clears throat> Uh, so your instinct isn't to get down on the dirty ground. Um, so I was put down and then I noticed that there was movement inside, but because it was completely dark inside and too bright outside, I couldn't see. Um, and eventually this uh, person came out. I finally discovered it was a woman. Uh, all her breasts were, were worn away with crawling on the dirt ground because she couldn't no longer walk. And I met the oldest person I have ever met in my life. Uh, but when I looked into her eyes, it was like looking into the heavens. She, it was, she was the most incredible person. I was very touched. Um, I saw wells of purity and holiness. And uh, it, was, it was amazing. Anyway, uh, I knew we were going to have a language problem. Uh, but at this stage, I had learned, you know, how to use Pidgin English and little bits of the local language and so on. So I got into communication with her anyway. She told me she was 130 years old. Whether she was or not, I couldn't tell you. But her skin was like leather. She told me that her husband was 60 years dead. Uh, and all her children were spread all over the world. <clears throat> she was completely alone. Um, and I said, well, how do you manage to eat? And she said, well, the villagers give me something every two days. I said, well, doesn't that make you angry? And she laughed. <laughs> she said, you're only a child, she said to me. <laughs> so I said, what do you do all the time? She was leaning up against the lintel of the, the door. She looked up at the sky with an expression of complete ecstasy. And she said, I speak to my father. Well, if you're 130 years old, who's your father? I said, who is your father? And she began to tell me about this wonderful relationship she had with God. And I said, tell me something. I said, does he talk to you? And she said, yes. I said, tell me something he has told you. And he said, she said, he told me I wouldn't die until a white missionary poured water on my head. And she said, you're the first white missionary I've ever seen. But talk about being galvanized into action. It was unbelievable. I, oh. said, I had to get back to the mission, try and communicate the story to somebody and bring them out. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, so I said to her, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get back as soon as I can. She said, don't worry, I'll wait longer than you'll ever live <laughs> <laughs> anyway the amazing thing is i ran all the way back to the, the parish now i'm i'm in uncharted territory i shouldn't have been able to find it like that and i knew my guardian angel guided me all the way i didn't even look at the trees <clears throat> i saw no snakes which was a miracle <laughs> and um tried to I broke in on the presbytery when the, the three priests were trying to have their meal. I don't recommend it. Uh, and so here was I all excited about this lady. And they said, would you sit down? We have nothing only crises in this country. No, I know I wanted to. I, so I went over to one of them. I literally took the knife and fork out of his hands and I said, she's one of your people. She is not going to wait another five minutes. <laughs> this is what we're going to do. And they realized that Frances had her monster face on and that was it. <laughs> and so got the priest. And I knew he was going to ask me the only question I couldn't answer. <laughs> Where does she live? <laughs> <laughs> It was the only question I couldn't answer. And all I could say was, come and see. <laughs> and they said, Francis, you've lost it. You've absolutely <laughs> lost it. <laughs> I said to him, get everything you have. 
for baptism, first communion and confirmation and extra unction and come with me. Now the, the other priest just literally laughed at me. <laughs> we went back, no problem finding her. And when we went to baptize her, she, we, the priest said to her, you know, we give you a new name at, at baptism. And she said, Father Francis, Sister Francis, Mrs. Francis. <laughs> we baptized her, Mrs. Francis. <laughs> and we buried her two days later. Wow. Amazing. And it's been one of the things I've been most affected by in my life. So much so that I went away to a retreat house for a week to think about it. And I said, Lord, tell me what I have seen. And he said, you have seen many things and you need to make sure you, you grasp it. First of all, I've shown you that I have gems all over the world, unknown to anybody else. Yeah. He said, I have saints that people know nothing about. You've met one of them. Wow. And he said, when your spoiled uh, people in Europe come to me complaining about this and that and the other and the other, he said, I will hold up Mrs. Francis as a person who waited 130 years in total patience and humility and love for me to move. Wow. That would be the end of their complaints. And then he said, you've also met old Simeon. Now you can dismiss your servant, O Lord, for mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all the nations to see. He said, I didn't want her to die without baptism. And because you forgave the people who hurt you that day, you deserved to have this privilege. I could have given it to somebody else. There's lots more in it. It was incredible. And he, he, he showed me what a, an incredible gem of humility and love and patience. He said, real virtue was in that woman. He said, there are people who have got a lot of religion and no virtue. That's right. That's an absolutely incredible story. And um, you were also ill um, during your time in Africa and you were visited by somebody with a Polish accent, uh, which I think is it later in life you uh, came to uh, believe that was Saint, you visited by Saint Maximilian Kolbe. And was this a big uh, transformational moment in your life as well? That was the time just before I left Africa forever. Okay. And um, things had come to a uh, head and I became extremely ill, not with any medical disease or anything. Uh, it was uh, dehydration was what was wrong, but, uh, missionaries can die very easily from very simple things because you have nothing there. Uh, so I'm just simplifying this as much as I can. So I was oh. taken down to the hospital and this um, Polish man walked up to us. There were no Polish people in the area. We never heard of a Polish doctor. And um, he walked straight up to us. I was no longer able to walk. So we were sitting on a bench and there was a sister with me and a driver because both of them had to help me to walk. I couldn't walk. And he said, I will see Francis in this room. And everybody was, how does he know? And he wouldn't allow anybody else to come in with me because we had a rule that, you know, two sisters would go together uh, into a doctor's room for safety. Um, and uh, when I, I lay on the, the bench that the patient lies on, <clears throat> He folded his arms and he looked at me. I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm beginning to recognize something. And he said, actually, you're not sick, but you're dying. <laughs> I started to laugh. I mean, does it matter that you're, whether you're sick or not if you're actually dying? And I said, oh, gee, thanks. And he had his arms folded like this and he put his head back and he laughed heartily. And I recognized it. It was Jesus's laugh. I said, okay, I'm all ears. I was forgetting the illness whatsoever. I said, tell me. 
And then he, he said that uh, God has sent me to you. He said, I'm not actually Jesus. But you see, everybody in heaven becomes more and more and more and more like him. Mm-hmm. That's what St. John says. We will be like him when we see him as he really is. You see, and he was so like him. But the, when the saints visit you, they always leave their call card. And the call card was this very strong Polish accent that was going to make me um, <clears throat> ask enough questions to find out the answer. <clears throat> And uh, he said, God wants me to tell you that there are two ways of being a missionary. One of them is in a religious order, as you are now, and the other is to become a lay missionary. And he wants you to become a lay missionary. He wants you to travel all over Britain and Ireland, preaching the gospel in season and out of season, because the door will close to the gospel. But as far as I was concerned, that was off the wall. I said, in Ireland? It won't happen in Ireland. He said, listen, it has happened. It has happened. I've witnessed it all down the years. We were we're back to paganism now. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I I knew what what I was to do in the future. Uh, So it was, as you say, a transitional moment, a very important moment. move from one way of life to another but an extremely traumatic move yeah so that was an extremely uh huge step for you you know to leave the what you take vows of you know poverty um chastity and obedience in religious life and then you've got to leave that security of religious life to go back to the world and that must have taken a long time to adjust and adapt to living in the world as you know opposed to a convent and uh, when you were very ill, you know, by your own volition, you um, went to a hospital, you, you were lacking ability to sleep. Uh, and what, what was that experience like as well? The, uh, <clears throat> from the time I arrived in Nigeria, there was a war. Mm-hmm. And then there was the traumatic uh, leaving of Nigeria. And the end of that story was that I was unconscious for three days. I just didn't tell you the whole story at the end of that. Yeah. And then I was thrown into work in the Cameroon. There was no break. Yeah. Um, and so I was sleeping less and less and less and less. And so if you want to become really ill and die, just stop sleeping. Yeah. And so it was the, the lack of sleep it was the dehydration, it was the stress, it was absolute everything. I was in a total wreck. Uh, and so the trauma of leaving the community. You see, I had no personal reason to leave. What I mean by that is I didn't hate anybody. I didn't hate the yeah. system. I didn't reject anybody. I didn't reject the system. That wasn't why I left. I left because I got this message from heaven. Uh, and so you find yourself without reputation, because now you're, you're labeled an ex-nun. Yeah. Uh, you have no friends, nobody wants to know an ex-nun in those days. Don't think they care nowadays. Uh, and you had no friends, no contacts, no nothing, no prospects, nothing. And so all of this stress and all of this tiredness and all of this trauma just absolutely takes hold. Mm-hmm. I knew that nobody would understand. The only people who would understand would be in a psychiatric hospital. And that's why I presented myself to a psychiatric hospital and said, if I don't sleep, I will die. Oh. And the, the head of the hospital who interviewed me, because he said, he said, has never happened before that somebody will walk <laughs> up to a psychiatric hospital and say, please, can I come in and sleep? <laughs> He said, it's never happened before. He said, this is not in the books. I said, please let me sleep. I slept for seven full days. Wow. Now he helped me because he sedated me a little bit. And I remember when, and I, when I woke up, I was standing at the end of the bed and he said, did you enjoy that? I said, I've had a great sleep. I feel great. He said, he started to laugh and he said, how long do you think you slept? Well, he said, I said, probably two or three days. He said, seven. Well, days. he said, we've never witnessed this before. He said, you never asked for anything. 
He never asked for your family, your friends. He said, for food, for water. For... I said, no, I was tired. <laughs> he said, you were tired. Yes, you were. But the Lord told me something else. Because I looked up and there was a crucifix on the wall. And when the, the doctor went out, I said, Lord, what's going on? And he said, I've allowed you to experience hell itself. And because of that, he said, you will never, ever meet anybody you don't understand. Because no matter what hell they experience, hell is hell. And he said, you need this for the, the journey you're about to take. And the, the ministering experiencing in the hospital, you uh, ministered some people really profoundly at that time as well. You know, just like oh, really yeah. hit the nail on the head of where people were at. Yeah, no, it was really, it was, it was a very interesting experience because I said to the doctors, you know, I can't be just sort of hanging around. And the missionary, I said, can I visit the others? Can I talk to them? They said, oh, yeah. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't expecting anything until people started getting healed. And they said, you know, what are you doing, you know? And I said, well, I'm sort of getting through, like, you know what I mean? He said, and I remember saying to one doctor, I got through to a place that you didn't. He said, yeah, sure I did. Um, but there were some very dramatic healings that actually happened. Uh, and some of them were funny as well. You know, I don't want to tell them all in public. Yeah. But it was just that <clears throat> if you have an interior life, and if God has touched your life, you can touch into the interior of somebody else's life and call them. And that's what I was doing, calling them out of their darkness and into light, you know. Um, and in, in one or two cases, I just said, look, will you stop being so silly? You're not sick. You have a problem, but you're not sick. Don't stay here if you're not sick. <laughs> and it was, it was funny. That was definitely the message they needed to hear. Well, uh, Francis, we've run out of time for this interview, but I do believe we uh, have the privilege of uh, another interview to hear about your involvement as a teaching scripture as a lay person. So the next stage in your life and also your involvement in the charismatic renewal and then how you got involved in the teachings of Louise Picaretta, living in the divine will and sort of the next stage of, of your life as well. I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating this, uh, a whirlwind tour. Sorry, it's been a, a whistle stop tour so quickly. Uh, we could spend an hour on every single question at least, but it's been such a privilege and honour and God has used you so profoundly in, in your life in, in so many different countries, um, taking the gospel to, to other people. Thank you for the privilege of sharing your story uh, sharing your story today uh, it's been really one of the best interviews I've done and uh, has been a huge blessing so uh, thank you so much and uh, if, to find out more uh, francishogan.com or divinewillfamily.org uh, look forward to part two of this interview thank you so much for your time Francis it's been a, a real privilege today thank you all okay. for listening God may God bless you thank you